0: I hope you will be here next week, and we are going to have a blast. We're actually going to be wrapping up this series, and at the same time, just celebrating 25 years of God's faithfulness. In fact, man, we got donuts for everybody next weekend, because we heard a couple of middle school girls tell us, a couple of, nothing better than Jesus and donuts, right? So we're going to have donuts, we're going to celebrate, and I hope you'll be a part of it. And don't forget, get your tickets for Easter. Easter. Um, We have 17 services that start as early as Friday night at the Raleigh campus. They go as late at afternoon services here at the apex campus so get your tickets and do everything you can unless you have guests who want to come at that particular time do everything you can not to come at 9 30 and 11 15 on easter because that's when our neighbors who don't know that this place is like six flags over jesus are going to show up right and they don't know you got you know they don't they may not be a seat there may not be a parking space so try to come on saturday try to come on sunday afternoon if you're going out of town show up at friday at Raleigh, but try to come in those off hours so we can make sure everybody has the opportunity to get in, we're we're gonna have a great time. Now this is the third week of our series we're calling Finding God and we're learning what it looks like to pursue God so that we can grow in our relationship with him so that we can become the people that God wants us to be. And if you were here a few weeks ago when I kicked off the series, We talked about a survey that we as a church were involved in, 525 churches like Hope Across America, 180,000 people participated in this survey. And what we discovered was pretty much every week at church, there's four groups of people who are in attendance. And and if you're here this weekend, you fit into one of these four groups. And so let's just do a little review and, and see how well you listened, okay? The first group would be those of you who are what? Okay, two people, exploring, exploring God. You're not a Christian. You may not even be interested in Christianity. You're, you still haven't decided, hey, is there even a God, right? But you're showing up, you're kicking the tires, you're doing your homework, but you're in this category. You're just exploring God. But if you respond to the gospel, and the gospel simply means you realize that you were separated from God, Jesus sent his son to this earth to die on the cross to shed his blood, to pay for your sins. He rose from the dead three days later to verify he was the son of God who could take care of your sins. He was the legitimate one that could do that. And if you invite him into your life and decide to follow him, if you make him your savior, then you are, what is it, the next group? Okay, thanks mom. Beginning with God. And then the next group is those who are close to God. And then the last one is those who are god-centered and this is by the way where god wants to take every one of us and then we said there's actually three key words that kind of move us along what we'll call this growth path the first one is what grace now what is grace grace is when you get to the point where you realize there's no way i can earn my way back into a relationship with god i don't care how much money i give i don't care how much i read my bible i don't care how much i show up in church I have to come to the point where I realize I am lost, I'm separated from God, I can't work my way back in, I can't earn my way back in, I can only be in a relationship with God because what God has done for me, he did for me what I could not do for myself, he gave his son to be my savior. Now, uh, I shared something with Laura a little while back, and she said I could share it with you, so it's okay, but... um, I told you guys this before how, you know, I grew up in a Christian home. I was in church my whole life. When I was about five years old, I went to church. There was an evangelist, you know, a hellfire and brimstone. And he talked about, when you die, you're gonna go to hell. And, and I, I went home and I said, mama, I don't wanna go to hell, you know? And uh, my mom showed me how to invite Jesus into my life. Man, I grew up the biggest legalist in the world. I mean, it was all about rules. It was all trying to please God. If you didn't please God, you felt guilty. And, and maybe if you grew up Catholic, it's the same way. You just, you're just guilty all the time because you can't pull this stuff off. You know what I'm talking about? And so when I went to seminary, and I didn't go to seminary until after I started pastoring a church, because I, 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 the last thing I wanted to be in life was a minister. That, but anyway, so I was going to be a teacher. I had it all planned out. And then somehow, weird circumstances, I ended up being a pastor at the age of 24. And then... I had to go to seminary. So I go to seminary at Talbot in Southern California and I'm sitting there with Dr. Neil Anderson who's over the School of Pastoral Ministries and and I'm asking him some questions because I have no idea how to be a pastor, right? And I got a problem every week, I don't know how to resolve. And we were talking one day and he says, man, you have no idea what grace is, do you? I'm like, what do you mean? He says, your whole life's been about just trying to please God, just trying to please God, just trying to please God and you haven't realized you can't please God. And I was, I was a legalist. In fact, the first time I visited Laura's church in Southern California, there were two guys and a girl singing with an acoustic guitar. I thought the whole church is going to hell. In fact, I'm marrying a girl that's going to hell right now. You don't have this kind of music in church. Now it's like an Aerosmith concert up here every weekend, right? But, <laughs> but that's how I was. I was 25 and pastoring a church when I, under, when I finally understood it took grace. And I told Laura, I said, I may have actually been a pastor before I really got saved. Now, don't worry. I'm, I'm confident that I'm a Christian now. <laughs> I'm saying I'm 83, 84% sure. So, you know, but now maybe I, maybe, maybe I became a Christian at five and I didn't understand the decision I made until I was 25. Or maybe, it doesn't really matter to me, to be honest with you. God, God's going to work in our lives. But you got to get to that place where you realize at some point, man, I'm lost. I'm not just good. I've been in church. See, what happens? You get to church your whole life. You do good things your whole life, and you just kind of feel like, I must be okay. I've been in church my whole life. But you got to come to the place where you realize I'm lost. I'm separated from God, and, and, and only God can restore me through his grace. Okay, what was the second word? Bible. And uh, Chase talked about this last weekend. I'm going to piggyback on that a little bit this weekend. And then the last one is what? Giving. Not as excited about that one. But... Um, It doesn't mean your money, it means your life, it means you get to the place when you're God-centered, like, I am actually more interested in being involved in building the kingdom of God than I am in just building my own kingdom, which is going to be destroyed when I die anyway, right? So that's where you want to, and we said across the top, you could write the word growing, because we're all growing, and if we stop growing, guess what happens? We start start going backwards. I like, I listened to Chase's message the other day on the treadmill, and, uh, He used the word conforming. We're in the process of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. In other words, that's the project that God is taking us on to get us here. He wants our character to begin to match the character of Jesus Christ. Now, what I wanna do this weekend is I wanna piggyback on what Chase talked last week about the importance of the word of God getting grounded in our lives so that it can take root, so that our lives can change. And what I want you to see is, I want you to see this weekend how Satan, our enemy, is going to try to hinder us in this process of of having God's word grounded in our life so that we can become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ so that we can be productive as we'll see next week when we look here and our lives produce some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. In other words, God begins to use our lives in incredible ways and I think we all want that to happen. And we're, so we're going to talk about how Satan attacks us. And I want to remind you, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, Satan attacks us by attacking our minds. Let's go back to the verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Paul said, I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, the word means trickery, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, let me just say something here, because I know right now some of you are turning me off because you think, oh, Satan. Let me tell you. Satan is real you need to understand that Satan is real now I remember when I was doing the battle test this series when it was about spiritual warfare a lady walked up to me and she said uh, she said I am so intrigued by this series she said however I, I don't believe in Satan I'm like oh I said do you believe in God she said oh yeah I believe in God but you don't believe in Satan she said no I said do you believe in heaven yes do you believe in hell oh no I don't believe in hell And I told her, I said, man, I'd like to see the verse in the Bible that says being a Christian is kind of like going to the buffet at the Golden Corral, you know? I'll have some God, no, hold the Satan, not not interested in that. I will have, could I have a couple of extra dose, uh, uh, portions of heaven, thank you. No, no hell, no thank you. I'll have a couple of guardian angels. Yeah, no demons. I don't want any demons whatsoever. You know, I'm like, good gracious, Congratulations, you just created your own religion. You know what I'm saying? I mean, just add in the fact that you gotta get baptized, maybe under a waterfall, a Pinot Grigio, by a unicorn, and I'm telling you, people will follow you. We live in America, people are whacked out in America. You will have your own religion. But my point is, this is real stuff. I mean, here's the thing, think about this. If you don't believe in spiritual warfare, if you don't believe in Satan, if you don't believe in demons, then you've gotta ignore half the stuff that Jesus taught because Jesus had a lot to say about it. And so Paul tells us in that verse that Satan's gonna use anything he can to get our minds to stray away from our, our sincere, pure devotion to Jesus Christ. He will use anything in his arsenal to shift our focus to all sorts of things which seem okay, many times they are okay, but the result is they replace our devotion to Jesus Christ. In other words, instead of Jesus Christ sitting on the throne of our life, something takes his place. And some of you, you've experienced that. You know from experience how good things can cause a shift in your relationship to Jesus Christ. You know how this often happens? Children, something as innocent as children. Because, see, now you have kids, and now they want to do this. They want to play soccer. They want to play water polo. They want to ride horses. They want to, you know, they want to be gymnastics experts. They're all going to go to the Olympics. and you know, They want to do all these things, and you get so busy. Well, forget going to church. That ain't going to happen because you're busy every weekend. And while you used to read your Bible every morning, but good gracious, you can barely keep your head above because you've got to get your kids a gymnastic rehearsal, at, you know, practice at 5 in the morning. And all of a sudden, you look back and where Christ used to be the center of your life, just having children. All of a sudden, it's been a shift in your relationship with Jesus Christ. I ran into a girl at Walmart one day, and I said, man, I haven't seen you in a couple of years, and which is not unusual. People move, change campuses and stuff. And she said, actually, two years ago, we had our baby. And it took us a while to try to think about bringing the baby to church. And I'm like, good gracious. I, you know, I think mine were born, I brought them straight to the hospital, put them, put them in the nursery. You know what I'm saying? That's like free babysitting. They're not going to kill them in there. You can do that, Pete. But anyway, uh, I digress. I um, digress. And she said, by the time we felt comfortable, you know what we realized? We just realized we just enjoyed our little family time on the weekend more than going to church. A baby, just a baby shifts you in in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it could be a boat. I don't need Jesus. I got a boat, right? I mean, but whatever Satan can do to get our minds distracted. And that's what we're gonna see this weekend as it relates to God's word, the Bible taking root. In our life, So if you have your Bible, let's go back to Mark chapter four. Let's continue with the parable of the sower. I want you to see what Jesus said. Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. If you don't have your Bible, the verses are up on the screen. As he was scattering the seeds, some fell along the path and the, notice the word birds, we'll come back to that, came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly. Because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, remember that word, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Now, to understand what Jesus is really saying in this parable, we have to understand what birds and what thorns represent in this parable. And to give you a little theology lesson, there are things in the Bible, sometimes they're referred to as types. Sometimes they are referred to as shadows, but they use one thing that represents something else. And just in case you have to leave early, I'll give you the spoiler alert. Birds and thorns, as I'm gonna show you in just a second, it's actually a reference to demons. It's an actual reference to the work of Satan in our lives to make sure that the word of God doesn't get grounded in our lives. You say, well, Mike, how do you know that's what it represents? Well, go back to verse four. As he was scattering the seeds, some fell along the path and the birds, what did they do? They came and ate it. And then remember I told you last time Jesus finished up this parable by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, right? And the crowds all clapped and went home and Jesus was left just with the disciples and finally one of them spoke up and said, we have no clue what you were talking about. We have no idea. Right over our head, Jesus, could you please explain it to us? And Jesus says, fine, I'll explain it to you. Verse 15, some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, who? We can say that out loud together, okay? Who? Who? Yeah, not birds, Satan comes and takes the word that was sown in them. So that tells us that the birds in this parable represent Satan, or probably a better way to phrase it would be the work of Satan. And I say that because Satan is a created being, just like we are created beings. He was originally Lucifer. He was an incredible angel in heaven, right? And then he got a little full of himself, tried to pull off an angelic coup, tried to overthrow God. And he ended up getting kicked out of heaven with a third of the angels, which become demons. Now, here's why I tell you, Satan's a created being. He can't be everywhere at one time. He's not omnipresent, only God can be omnipresent. So people come up to me and say, well, I have really been under Satan's attack this week. I'm like, eh, probably not. And they're like, why? And I said, well, you probably aren't important enough. I mean, he can really only attack. In fact, neither am I, so don't get your feelings hurt, right? But he can only be one place attacking one person at one time. But it is very, very possible that you've experienced some kind of demonic oppression in your life, even as a Christian. Let me show you another place where birds represent the work of Satan. This is an interesting passage. Just ignore the rest of it. I'm not going to teach Revelation this weekend, but there's something I want to show you. John writes, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Not a reference to a literal city. That's another message for another time. But notice this. She has become a dwelling for demon, a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird. Does that mean there's a lot of really nasty, messy seagulls, you know, kind of, you know, no buzzers, uh-uh. He's talking about demons. He's talking about those fallen angels. In fact, just think about this. There are actually 52 references to birds in the Bible that are talking about the work of Satan. You can actually study that on your own. But I want you to understand that birds in Mark chapter 4 represent demons, fallen angels, the work of Satan. What do thorns represent? Well, before I can show you what thorns represent, I have to show you what scorpions represent. You're like, Mike, this is like being at the animal planet, you know, this morning. But, but, but let me show you a really cool passage. Luke chapter 10, a very, a whole denominations have been built on misusing this verse. Luke chapter 10, verse 17. Remember, Jesus sent out 72 followers and he sent them out to the cities that he was going to go visit eventually to kind of prepare the way. And so it says, the 72 return, verse 17, Luke chapter 10, with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus is like, that doesn't surprise me. Because look at the next thing Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. You know what Jesus was saying? Yeah, I remember I was there in heaven when, when Lucifer tried to overthrow dad, and I remember dad having to kick him out of heaven with a third of the angels. It doesn't surprise me that, they, that, that, that you have power over them. Look what he says I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Now, let me ask you a question. It's spring, copperheads are coming out. You know, if you find one in your backyard and you're a Christian, can you just go out and do a little square dance on a copperhead and not get bitten? No, that's not what it's teaching. Can you walk through the desert and step on scorpions and them not harm you? That's not what it's teaching. I mean there are some religions where they believe you do handle snakes and it's proof that you know you're filled with the Spirit, that you're a Christian and all. That's not what Jesus is teaching here. Then what did he mean? Well to answer that question, you gotta you gotta understand what snakes and scorpions represent in the context. Jesus isn't talking about literal snakes. He's not talking about literal scorpions. He's referring to demons. He's referring to those angels that were kicked out of heaven with Satan. In fact, if you just go to the very next verse, verse 20, Jesus says, However, do not rejoice that the spirits, the snakes and the scorpions, submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Don't be excited. I have given you the authority over demons. As Christians, as my followers, I've given you authority, power over the work of Satan. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And so here's my next question. If snakes and scorpions represent demons, think about Mark chapter four, what do thorns represent? I'm so glad you asked. Let me show you, Ezekiel chapter two, don't even try to find it. You will never find it. Ezekiel chapter two, verse three, God is speaking to Ezekiel. He says, son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Now understand, these are God's chosen people, right? The Israelites. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for let me remind you, they are a rebellious people. They will know that a prophet has been among them. In other words, they will have heard God's voice through you. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you and you live among scorpions. Was God saying, Ezekiel, you be careful when you go down to those Israelites, Whoa, they got some thorn bushes down there and they will mess you up. If you get your clothes caught on them. Or be careful about where you step, scorpion. No, he's, again, he's talking about demons. And how do we know that the scorpions in Ezekiel chapter two and the scorpions in Luke chapter 10, how do we know they both represent demons? Well, it's because the same dude wrote the whole book. The whole book is in, the inspired word, of God, So this is what I'm trying to tell you. The Bible can actually interpret the Bible. Now, why am I taking so much time showing you what birds and thorns and scorpions represent? And I can tell by the look on your faces, you're like, I have no idea whatsoever what we're up to this weekend. Mike. I'm trying just to show you simply how to study the Bible. See, I could just sit up here every weekend. Donnie could just sit up here. Chase could just sit up here and just give you a fish. We could provide you with some kind of spiritual meal, some spiritual nugget but see if we can teach you to fish you can feed yourself spiritually every day one of the biggest complaints i get personally as a pastor is mike you just aren't deep enough i'm like hello i was a p.e major i mean what do you expect i'm only i'm only so smart but here's the thing it's not my job to be deep it's not my job to sit up here and spoon feed you spiritual truth every week you know what my job is is to whet your appetite And hopefully you'll leave this place, you'll go home and you're gonna want to study this stuff on your own. You're gonna wanna begin to feed yourself spiritually because I can promise you this, if you're ever gonna get here, it's not because you're depending on a 30 minute, 35 minute message every week for your spiritual growth. It's because you've learned out how to feed yourself spiritually. Let me show you a couple of more things about thorns because we're all gonna deal with thorns in our lives and that's what Jesus talked about. I mean, even if you're close to God, It's pretty cool. Even if you're God-centered, the thorns are going to do everything they can, the the, the work of Satan to choke the word out of your life. In fact, let me show you an example of someone who was God-centered, but he had to deal with thorns. But before I show you the verse, I know you like little Greek words, so let me give you a little Greek word. The Greek word for angel in the Bible, this is a real easy one. You can like say, I know a little Greek now. And, uh, the Greek word for angel in the Bible is angelos. It just takes the word angel, add O-S to it, and that's the Greek word. Sometimes it's translated angel, sometimes it's translated messenger. So what would an angel of Satan be? It would be a demon. It would be a fallen angel. Now, I want to show you something that the Apostle Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, so I think we can assume he was God-centered, right? I want you to see what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a... Thorn in my flesh. Now, I've been around church and messages all of my life. It's, it's amazing how people have interpreted this. I've heard one pastor say, I think Paul is saying his thorn in the flesh was he ended up spending a lot of his life in prison. Well, that would be horrible, but that's not what he's talking about. I've heard other people say it was his health. I've heard other people because Paul commented in one letter that he, his eyesight was going bad. It was his eyesight. I even heard one pastor say, you know, Paul at one time was probably married and his wife was his thorn in the flesh, but he got rid of her. Now, men don't get any ideas, okay? But he says, I was given a thorn in my flesh, but don't stop reading. A messenger, guess what the Greek word is? Angelos. A messenger, an angel of Satan to torment me. So what does Paul call this messenger from Satan? It's a thorn. It's a demon. There's another reference to thorns when the people of Israel are getting ready to enter into the promised land. And I've heard people say, well, in the Bible, the promised land represents heaven. The promised land does not represent heaven. You say, Mike, how do you know that? Because there were enemies in the promised land. There's not gonna be any enemies in heaven, okay? So the promised land, if you wanna think about a type, it represents the Christian living a victorious life. I think this is what it says. If you will fight, If you will work every day in battle to drive the enemies out of your life, you will experience the life that God designed for you to experience. But you need to understand as a Christian, you're in a war. You're in a battle every day. You are going to have to fight. Now, in the Old Testament, it was literal enemies. In the New Testament, or for us today, it's spiritual enemies. But let me show you a reference to thorns as it related to the promised land. Numbers 33, verse 55. If you do not drive the inhabitants out of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your side. They will give you trouble in the land where you live. I think this is what it's saying to us today. Even once you become a Christian, You got to drive the enemies out of your life. Because if you just let them stay, see, those thorns, they will provide openings for Satan in your life and they will begin to harass you. In other words, if you don't drive things like bitterness and anger and unforgiveness and greed and lust out of your life, those things are going to harass you. They're gonna choke the word out of your life so that you never experience the life that God designed for you to experience. You're certainly not gonna become the person that he designed you to become. Now let's go back to Mark chapter 4 the parable of the sower, now that we understand what thorns represents, I want you to see three thorns that Jesus says can impact our lives in a negative way, three things that can happen in our lives that prevent God's word, word from taking root so that our lives are changed. Let's go back to Mark chapter four, verse 18. He said, still others like seeds sown among thorns hear the word, but here's the first thorn, the worries of this life. Here's the second thorn, the deceitfulness of wealth. And here's the third thorn, desire for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Let's just take them one at a time. First of all, they're the cares of this world. Now, if you're a Christian, uh, if you've made the decision to follow Jesus, let me just let you in on a secret. You were never designed to carry care. You ever said to someone, oh, take care. That's a bad thing to say. You don't want somebody to take care. We weren't designed to carry care. First Peter 5, 7, cast all of your anxiety. Maybe your translation says cares. It can go either way. Cast all of your anxiety, cast all of your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. So as a Christian, you weren't designed to carry care. You were designed to cast care. And when you design to, uh, list, decide to carry care, you're going to end up in trouble every time. I mean, let's be honest. We all have seasons of life that we go through where things really weigh on us. You may be sitting here this weekend and marriage, the marriage isn't going the way you thought it was going and you're concerned, it's weighing on you. It could be your finances. It could be your kids. I went through about a year to 18 months where it was my health and you, you try to be strong and you try to have faith, but it kind of weighs on you. You know, I told you guys a few months ago, I felt like God said to me, I want you to sell your house. I want you to downsize. I want you to do this. And so we did it. We, I would have probably stayed there forever. I'm tired of moving. I'm too old, but God said, do it, and so we do it. Now, let me tell you, I thought God would have a better plan in this because we actually move out of our house on April 16th. You know what that week is? It's the week where I got to speak like a thousand times that weekend coming up, right? Before Easter. Guess when we moved into our new house? The day after Easter. After I spent all weekend speaking a thousand times, I'm like, God, you didn't think this through very well, right? Right?" And so literally, we're, we're loading up our truck putting a lock on it, and driving around the community, coming to your house. we are probably spend the night in your driveway, eat breakfast with you, have lunch with you. We're going to be like the Jews leaving Egypt. We're just going to wander around for a whole week, right, till we get settled in the promised land, right? But it weighs on you because you lay awake at night, you know, you're trying to think, how are we going to make the logistics of all of this work, right? And then you ever try to get a mortgage? Uh, They call you, Mr. Lee, I saw you spent $2.19 at the 7-Eleven. Yeah, I bought a Slurpee. I I need some documentation on that. A picture would be great. You know, maybe some blood work to prove you did actually drink a Slurpee. You know, and it's like just, it's just, it's just, it's just a pain, right? So we go through all, we all go through these seasons and we're like, God, I can't handle this situation. I can't fix this situation. I can't resolve this situation. I'm giving it to you. And if you've been around church for a while, you say it like this, God, I can't deal with this. I'm laying it at your feet. See, that just sounds really spiritual, right? But what we're really saying is, I'm not going to deal with it anymore. I'm not going to worry about it anymore. I'm giving it to you to deal with God. This is your problem. And then we sit back and go. Well, if you're not going to do anything, then we just take it back. Right, right. See, we all do that, right? And Go right back to worry about it. But I'm telling you, the cares of this world choke the word of God out of our lives if we don't deal with them. For example, have you ever sat down and, and read a chapter in the Bible? Maybe, maybe you heard Chase's message last week. Man, I'm gonna read my Bible, right? And then you close your Bible and you're like, I have no idea what I just read. I mean, I do that all the time. Do you know why that happens? It's because your mind's somewhere else you're probably focused on some care of this world. Man, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to pay the rent. I don't know if I'm gonna be able to pass that exam. I got a paper due. I wonder if my, how my blood works gonna come back this week. I wonder if I'm gonna be able to meet that deadline at work. And while you're actually trying to take in God's word, all these things are going on in your mind. And so the cares of this world, they, they prevent God's word from taking root in our lives so that our lives can change. Here's the second thorn. It's the deceitfulness of riches. Let me tell you something, Satan will work overtime in your life when it comes to your money. In fact, I really believe that this is without a doubt, having been a pastor for 37 years, this is probably a spiritual stronghold that is taking place in your life where Satan has a little little, little foot in your life when it comes to your finances because you just can't seem to get this idea that you put God first. It's because you don't really believe what God says. Well, let me show you what Paul wrote to young Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Wow. And then he says this, if you back up a few verses to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, those who want to get rich. I mean, in other words, that is the driving force of your life. That is what gets you out of bed every day. I mean, you can't get to the store to buy enough lottery tickets because you just want to be rich, right? So he says, those who want to get rich, look at this, fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now notice this, for the love of money, not money, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And all of us know Christians who've gone down this road. See, I know people personally who were so consumed with making money that they did things that were unethical, and they ruined their career. They ruined their reputation. I even know a few people who were so consumed with being wealthy that they did things that were illegal and they found themselves in jail. So Paul says, you don't want to go down that road. Don't trust in riches. Don't desire riches. Don't let the love of riches be what gets you out of bed in the morning. Now, why is this so important? Well, it's important because we're supposed to trust God. We're supposed to love God. We're supposed to desire God. And so I think this is what Paul is saying. If you look to riches and money for the things that you should be looking to God for, he says, you're going to have problems. You're gonna fall into a trap of destruction. You're gonna fall into traps like grief and sorrow, but it is not gonna get you where you think it's gonna take you. And I think it's so interesting that back in Mark four nineteen, Jesus described it as the deceitfulness of riches. What's he saying? Money's deceptive. Money's deceptive. See, money tricks you into thinking, when I finally get, you fill in the blank. When I finally get this much, then I'm gonna be happy then I'm going to be satisfied. Then I'm going to feel secure. And not only that, then I am going to be generous. God, you just watch out. But Jesus, and I, it just doesn't work that way. Jesus says this, trust me first and I'll provide for you. And just in case you miss it, Jesus said, trust me first and I'll provide for you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then what he said, and then all these other things will be added unto you. What other things? God knows the culture we live in. God knows we live in a culture where our kids have to go to college. God knows we live in a culture where we have to prepare for retirement. We have to have health care. God knows we have to do all these things, right? So he's like, but I want you to trust me first, Jesus says, because I am the only one that can resolve your financial issues. I'm the only one that can relieve your financial stress and give you peace. But every time you hear that, Satan's like, don't listen to him. That guy's just trying to get your money, hoarding to make you happy. You want to hoard, be a cheerful hoarder. That's what you want to be, right? Just so you know, and I, and I, I just say this because this is a big church and I know people have all kinds of crazy ideas. Somebody uh, the other day said in their small group, they said that I was a multimillionaire. I'm like, oh, that would be so cool unless Laura's holding out on me. But anyway, uh, I, I'm actually under a contract. I, I mean, I'm not like an NBA player without the money. See, I have a, I have a five-year contract. And then we'll talk about it after the end of five years. You could write a check for a billion dollars today. It's not going to change my life, one penny. Because I have a board that pays me a salary, and they do my reviews, and I'm accountable to them, and I don't have access to any money in the church. I can't sign a check. I don't even know where the safe is, to be honest with you. They have codes on the finance. I don't know what those codes are. So you can relax that I'm trying. This has nothing to do with me. This has to do with you and being obedient to the word of God but you gotta deal with the deceitfulness of riches. That's how it works. Here's a, uh, by the way, it doesn't say those who are rich, nothing wrong with being rich. It doesn't say those who wanna provide for their family. Well, that's actually, that's actually admirable. In fact, Paul wrote to one, one letter, says, listen, if you don't provide for your family, man, you're worse than an infidel. So it's admirable that you wanna provide for your family. You know? It doesn't say those who desire to be successful in the career that God has given them. I, I've actually read where well, everything you do, do heartily is unto the Lord, nothing wrong with that. It's, it's talking about that yo, those of you who just, I mean, you check the stock market 50 times a day, you just, you, you know, buying those, you just, you just wanna be rich, you're consumed with it. And this word riches in the Greek means an abundance of things. So basically it's saying this, those who desire or pursue an abundance of things, you're gonna fall, you're gonna fall. Why? Because we're supposed to desire God and we're supposed to pursue God. And then the third thorn is the desire for other things. So this is different than money, this is different than riches. It literally means you have a passion for other things. For example, we want a car, any car, other than the one we have. We want a job, any job, other than the one we have. We want a spouse, any spouse, other other than the one we have. We just want something other than what we have. And I gotta tell you, this causes more depression in America right now than anything else. Have you done the studies recently on depression? on even the suicide rate increasing in America and its relationship to social media? Do you know why? Because social media is nothing but image management. You put out there what you want people to perceive of you. That's why you young couples, you put pictures of you with your arms around each other on the beach, ocean and palm trees, sun setting, like this is our life, it's just perfect. You didn't put the picture of the night before when you were so mad at each other, you yelling, sliva's flying out. You don't put that on there. You're not gonna put that out there. What what pictures do you put of your kids? Look at my kid, they got a trophy. Look at my kid, they got a certificate. You don't like, hey, here's under my kid's uh, bed. Look at the bong, he's 16 years old. He's got a bong under his bed. I just took a picture right there. Uh, That's my kid's bong right there. You don't put that on social media. So this is what happens, image management. Everybody looks at it and says, why isn't my life that good? Why isn't my marriage like that? Why aren't my kids perfect? And they get depressed. Can't be satisfied. Add to that, we live in a country where every day we have to be reminded of what we want, but we can't have. I mean, we turn on the TV where there are the commercials of things we want, but we can't have. We, we go to the dentist and flip through a magazine and there's advertisements about things we want, but we can't have. We pull up at the stoplight and there's the car we want, but we can't have. You drive into somebody's neighborhood to pick up their kids and there's the house you want to live in, but you can't have, right? We're never satisfied. And the reason people are never satisfied is because I'm just telling you, the only thing that can truly satisfy the human soul is God. He's the only thing that can fill up that void and scratch that itch. You will never be satisfied by getting a car other than the one you have or a job or a spouse or or, or, or a house other than the one you have. I'm telling you, God is the only thing that can truly satisfy by the way, this is interesting, this word desire, because we talked about the desire for other things. Uh, it, I told you a few weeks ago, the Greek word's epithymia. Uh, it's only used in Mark chapter four and two other places uh, where it's translated desire. Every other place that this word epithemia is translated is lust. I'll give you an example, 1 John two sixteen. For everything in the world, the lust, that's epithemia of the flesh. The lust of the eyes, that's epithemia. the pride of life come not from the Father, but from the world. In fact, the root of this word epithemia is passion. Paul used, to, he says, I passionately desire to go to heaven, Epithemia. Jesus said with the disciples, I passionately desire to eat this last Passover meal with you. That's the same word. So passion is a good thing. It's a God-given thing, but only a passionate pursuit for God will drive out the thorns that choke the word of God out of your life. But I got to tell you, when the thorns are finally dealt with, the word will begin to take root and it change your life. Now, why is this so important that you understand this principle? It's simply for this reason. Becoming a Christian, in other words, moving from group one to group two, does not automatically mean that your life is going to change. You need to understand that. It's not the way it works. It works by us getting the Word of God into our life so that we can, we can stop living under the lies we've always, that have always dictated our behavior and our attitude, and our life begins to align with the Word of God. But this is going to be the problem. Some of you are going to go out of here, wow, I got to start reading the Bible, get these thorns out of my life, because I'm telling you, that will do it. That will begin to do it. And you're going to go home, and you're going to like, man, I, I think Chase said Luke, I'm going to read the Gospel of Luke. And you, you're like, seven days in Luke, or seven days in First Corinthians, or whatever you're reading, and then you're gonna come across a verse where it says, give cheerfully. And Satan's gonna be, don't buy into that. You hoard cheerfully, you, you keep cheerfully. Greed will make you happy. And so yeah, I'll, do, I'll deal with that later on. I'm not, I'm not gonna pull my life into alignment with that. I'll, I'll just kind of ignore that. Or you read something that says, hey, by the way, in your relationships, you're to forgive as you've been forgiven. And how were we forgiven by God? Totally and unconditionally. But you read that and like, well, wait a second. You don't know what they did. In fact, there's some of you here right now, you've never forgiven people because somehow you think you're the exception. You think you're gonna get to heaven and God's gonna say, I notice here you never forgave that person. Yeah, God, but let me tell you what they did. And God's gonna say, wow, I had never heard anything like that in my life. You just sit right over here. You're the one exception to this rule, right? No, that's not the way it works. You bring your life into alignment with the word of God. Or you gotta accept people as you've been accepted. How have you been accepted? Totally and unconditional. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And you're like, yeah, but I don't accept them because you don't know what they do. Well, you know what? God knew what you did, and he accepted you. And what happens is we, we kind of we pick and choose, and instead of obeying God's word, we balk. And as a result, God's word never takes root in our life, and that's why our lives never change. In fact, some of you have been Christians for years, and you're still stuck here. I mean years, maybe 10, 15 years. And this is why your life's still a mess. And this is why your relationships are still a disaster. Because when it comes to being God-centered, God, uh, close to God, I'm telling you, you have to take your life and you have to bring it into alignment with the truth of God's word. It's because when you begin to see as God sees, you'll begin to do as God says. But it takes time. See, every one of us, if we're honest, could say, you know, when we first became Christians, we read certain things in the Bible, like, I am so sure. I am never going to do that. You know, submit to my husband. Have you met that loser? You know, I, I, that's never going to happen. But then as you continue to read and as the word begins to take root in your life, you know what happens? You're, one day you're sitting there like, oh man, now I understand why God said I have to forgive as I've been forgiven because I'm just hurting me by not forgiving or now I understand why God said, put him first in my financial world. Because actually, it restructures and reorders my financial world in, in a way that I'm, I'm not under debt. And I'm not bumping up the, against the ceiling all the time. Because I'm putting God first in my finances. Or, or whatever it is, it's like, oh, now God is so smart. Now it makes sense. And so if you want to drive the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things out of your life, if you want to deal with those, that demonic strongholds and influence in your life, you got to bring your life in alignment with God's word. Not just so you can read a chapter in the Bible every day and say, check, 14 days in a row. Mm-mm. It's so that you can fall passionately in love with the God of this book, who is already passionately in love with you. That's what it's all about. Father, thank you for the chance We had to be together this morning and just give us the courage to try it and see what you're doing in our lives. In your name we pray, amen. Good to see you guys, I love you.